So would you welcome Brother Randy Neal? She comes this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I know that we've already opened in prayer, but if you'd join me, I'd like to take a step back and make sure that I, I don't get in the way. So, uh, Lord, I bring to you the same appeal that I have more times than I can recall, that you would hide me in anonymity, that you'd be the only one glorified and lifted up today. If it's good in your sight, then touch the words that you've given me and use it to cast epiphanies, give people a greater understanding of your incredible love and plan and purpose for your firstborn, the apple of your eye, Israel. And if it's not good in your sight, then erase it from these folks' hard drive. Don't let them remember a single word I spoke when they get in their car. And I lift this in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. So, I don't, you know, I didn't see the show of hands when uh, when Pastor asked if you were visiting or not. So uh, I had a nice visit with him and got to just get a glimpse of his heart and appreciation and understanding for the nation of Israel. And so if you don't have a home church and you're visiting today and you're looking for a church that is strong with Israel and a pastor that gets it, you are in one right now. So uh, it didn't take very long for that to just come right out through the surface, and, and I, I appreciate him a great deal. Uh, we're going to make this a little bit interactive. I'm, in a moment, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our organization. This is not an infomercial for Christians United for Israel. Uh, this is just kind of going to lay out uh, and suggest to you why a lot of Christians believe that there's a biblical mandate uh, in the Word of God for Christians to stand with his firstborn. And so rather than me just going through a, a bunch of PowerPoint slides, uh, I, I need some volunteers that are going to crack open their Bibles and will and we'll actually read some, pas some passages for me. So I need somebody to take Genesis 12.3. Who will do that? Okay. I need somebody that's going to take... Uh, Isaiah 62. Okay, Isaiah 62. I need somebody that's going to take, uh, actually, before we go to Isaiah 62, I need somebody that's going to take Luke 7, 1 through 10. Okay? So go ahead and find those, if you will, and we'll call on you in just a few moments. Uh, I'll tell you a story that a lot of folks are unaware of. If you've been to one of these presentations before, then you might have heard of it, but you won't find this on our website or in any of our printed publications. It's a, a little story about Pastor John Hagee. And, uh, kind of, you know, I, I don't know if he was too far removed from uh, your own pastor here. He, he had never been to Israel, and he told his wife, Diane, that he was not going to go to Israel. And for her to not ask him to go to Israel, and I believe that it was because he didn't need to, to walk where Jesus walked to know that Jesus walked there. Uh, but uh, one day he was watching a documentary on the Yom Kippur War, and he saw how the Lord used an unrighteous Gentile like Richard Nixon to be a deliverer and defense for Israel. And, he, and when, the, when the credits were rolling to, to the close, he leaned over to Diana and he says, we're going to go to Israel. And as you'll see in a short clip in a moment ago, or in a, in a moment coming up, he said that he went to Israel as a tourist and he came back a Zionist. And he cast the vision, he had the vision for for Christians United for Israel almost 30 years ago. Uh, tried to bring you know, some leaders together to, uh, to really launch it with this vision. Brought 30 national leaders to San Antonio on his own dime, about $100,000 of his own money, for a three-day conference to cast the vision of what would be ultimately the, the, an organization that has come to be in fruition, Christians United for Israel. And these are not just, this is not a guy that wrote a best-selling book. This is a man that owns the publishing company. It's not a fellow that has a popular Christian TV show. It's the person that owns the broadcasting company. These are Christians with huge bases of influence that he brought to San Antonio to cast this vision to. And before they broke for lunch on day one, he unveiled a dynamic of this would-be organization that was a kind of a foreign paradigm in the Christian economy of thought. And that is that it would be by design and without exception, non-conversionary to the Jewish people. They'd be events where people would be educated and equipped and come together in solidarity. They weren't church services. And he broke for lunch. 29 of the 30 went out to the foyer, called their secretary at home, said, give me an earlier flight out of here. I want nothing to do with this. Fast forward to the fall of 2005. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, president of Iran, is asking the world to imagine itself without Zionism and America. And Pastor Hagee's asked to do a special address at the Knesset Israel's parliament. When he's done, 
uh, then member of the, of the Knesset came up to him, kind of grabbed him by the sleeve. So I got a question for you. Why is it, you know, when the, when the rockets are flying and the, and the vests are exploding on buses and in pizza parlors, you know, the Jewish tourists will cancel their trips and Christian tourists book them spontaneously to come over here and show us their support. They fill the buses, they fill the hotels, they fill the restaurants, they spend their money in the souvenir shops. They're the lifeblood of our tourist economy. But the people in the restaurant have no idea who the Christians at the next table are. They have no idea who the Christians in the bus behind them or in front of them are. It says, can you imagine the impact that you Christians could have on U.S.'s relations if you were united? And he thought back to those 29 guys that cut and run on him a couple decades earlier. And he said, Mr. Netanyahu, I don't think God himself can unite the Christian community. <laughs> but on that long flight home, he, uh, you know, he had a vision, and uh, he made a few phone calls, invited 400 Christian leaders to come to San Antonio on their own nickel this time. <laughs> and uh, he braced his staff and family. He says, when we get to the non-conversionary part, he says, just pretend that somebody threw a hornet's nest in church. It's, we're going to be up until 2 o'clock. People are going to be insisting on mission statements. He says it's, it's not going to be pretty. People are going to walk out, and there's going to be division. Just, just wait and see. And he, he, he unveiled that dynamic. Everybody was totally on board. You could have heard a pin drop. They realized that it, that it was time. So, yeah, you can clap for that. Was, uh... So with that said, three disclaimers before we get out of the gate here. One, we are... And we are an evangelical Christian organization. We're not an interfaith organization. We're not an ecumenical organization. Though our events are non-conversionary without an altar call, we believe and we don't make a secret about it and we don't make an apology for it that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, period. The punchline is, is that we don't insist that our Jewish friends agree with us theologically before we're going to commit to stand with them unwaveringly especially when their enemies are on the march, and if you've been paying attention, their enemies are on the march. Second disclaimer is, being pro-Israel is not synonymous with being anti-Arab. There's some people that can't wrap their brain around loving the Jews without hating the Palestinians. And if, that's, if you know somebody like that, then put your arm around them, have them take a couple steps back, don't go there. Okay, there are, there are Arabs, organizations, few political figures, that have hijacked the, the narrative for the Arabs. And, they, and there, you go back 100 years, there were scholars and visionaries and entrepreneurs and, and dignitaries that saw the merit and the value of working with the Jews or returning back to Israel, bringing Western technology to drain the swamps that had been killing thousands of people a year with malaria and turning them into vineyards and olive groves. But if they spoke out loudly in the town square, they found themselves either murdered, muted, or having to move away. The third disclaimer is that this is a really biased presentation. <laughs> and uh, if, you, you know, if you are going to have trouble kind of wrapping your hand onto the notion that Israel has the right to exist, then you might want to leave right now and just kind of reclaim your Sunday, because it's just going to get a little deeper as we move on. So let's, uh, it would take me 20 minutes to try to describe uh, to you why Pastor Hagee founded this organization. Uh, but I'll let him do it in about three. So just uh, sit through this short clip, and you'll have a better idea. On the emphasis that uh, I went in the direction of the ministry, which has proven to be the right choice. I went to Israel in 1978. I went there as a tourist, and I came home a Zionist. And while I was praying at the Western Wall, I saw a Jewish man praying, rocking back and forth, kissing the Bible with a prayer shawl on. And it dawned on me that I had been raised in the church and I didn't know one thing about that man. And so I went on a three-year study binge uh, so that I could uh, become equipped to reach out and to relate to the Jewish community in a meaningful way. I really didn't know how to go about that until the bombing of the nuclear reactor in 1981. When Israel attacked Iraq in 1981, the media in San Antonio was very critical of Israel. Good evening. The aftershock is beginning to mount in the wake of Israel bombing a nuclear plant in Iraq. Using American and I felt Israel had done the world a favor. And I said to my wife while I'm watching the 10 o'clock news, I want to have an eye to honor Israel. I want to invite every pastor in San Antonio to go to the municipal auditorium 
And I want to tell the Jewish community and the national television audience how much we should appreciate Israel for what they've done. Our first night to honor Israel was 25 years ago. We had 3,000 people there. This year, a night to honor Israel is being conducted in 40 major American cities. We needed, as a Christian community, to have an organization where every Christian church, every Christian believer who was pro-Israel could have the opportunity to stand up and speak up for Israel. Now, millions of Christians from Maine to California are involved in defending Israel and advocacy for Israel in these ways. One, we're going to Washington. We're speaking to senators and congressmen, which is something Christians have never done. We will send emails, faxes, phone calls to senators and congressmen from every state in the union so that when the senators and congressmen ask their staff, what's the mail today? It runs off the charts in support of Israel and it's Christians who are supporting Israel. There is a new breed of Christian on the street. They are Christians who are pro-Israel. We both want good things to happen to Israel. Israel is an American asset because it's a democracy, because it is a friend that stabilizes the Middle East, because they are a loyal partner. Let's unite our strengths, our energies, and our people, and win this battle. Boy, I like this church. I have a feeling I, I, I don't even need to be here. <laughs> when uh, that clip was made five years ago, we had fewer than 50,000 members nationwide. And uh, as we are gathered here today, we've got just, we're about ready to break a million 200,000 members. We're the largest pro-Israel organization in the world. And, uh, and when, uh, when we wrap this up, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that DC summit that's coming up next month. I came, to faith, uh, I came to faith as a young man. I uh, had no intentions of, of coming to faith. I, uh, I joined a men's Bible study because I wanted to be a better dad and a better husband, but I didn't want to be a Christian. And so I thought I would treat God kind of like a buffet table, and I'd leave, you know, leave the Christianity part, but I'd take the attributes to be just a better man, integrity and accountability-wise. And I, I you know, kind of rubbed the guys in the, in the Bible study a little wrong. Have you seen those little chrome... Darwin fish that people have in the back of the car? That was way too small for me. I went and I got a, a, a roll of racing tape and I put a huge Darwin fish on the back of my Ford Ranger pickup truck. And every Saturday morning I'd go to that men's Bible study at that church with that truck parked out in the parking lot. And uh, one day I got, you know, got out in that truck and I stared at that fish in my rear view mirror for about 45 minutes. Went into my home office later and I got on my knees puked out every bad thing I could think of to apologize to God for and asked if it was too late for me. And I sensed that it wasn't. It was almost audible. And I went to my junk drawer that we all have that has the batteries that are dead and the pens that don't write anymore <laughs> and uh, found a single-edged razor blade, went out to my driveway, cut the feet off of my Darwin fish, and he evolved to a higher life form that day. But I kept going to that Bible study, and I asked the fellows in the Bible study, I said, this Israel that we keep running into, is this like Israel like on the news? Is this like the same Israel like on CNN? And they laughed out loud just like that. And they said, no, no, wherever you see Israel, just pretend that it says the church there. And I was introduced to supersession or replacement theology. And it is apparent I didn't embrace it, or I probably wouldn't be here with you right now. I figured if the, if the Word of God is without error, I don't need you to explain that he didn't really mean what he said. And so uh, when we look at the word Israel, we believe that it's referencing a piece of geography in the Middle East and the biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So who's got Genesis 12.3? Read it out loud as clear as you can. All right. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You can, I wouldn't be surprised if the church already has, do a several-week Bible study on the three lines in that passage right there. I'll bless those that bless you. There are millions of American Christians 
that believe that the incredible station that this nation's enjoyed as a world leader and the quality of life that we have, some might argue, not, not so even deserved to have, uh, is directly connected to the fact that we're the first country to recognize the reestablishment of the Jewish state. Yeah, that second line, those same Christians believe that the day that this nation throws that nation under the bus is the beginning of the end of that. And that third line, that in you all the families there shall be blessed, I know we could unpack that to a great degree, but just try to, try to solve this math equation. How is it possible that a world, that a people group that makes up less than a quarter of 1% of the world's population, 0.22% of, 0.22 of 1%, every year, year in and year out, they get 25 to 35% of the Nobel Prizes? Energy, environment, medical, agriculture. It's, just, it's because they want to leave the world a better place than they found it. And, uh, and, and the world has been blessed, and all, you, all the families out there shall be blessed. Who has uh, Luke 7, 1 through 10? I love those digital Bibles on the iPhones. Pastors always think that you're checking your text messages, though, and you're looking up the, the passage. <laughs> when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum, their uh, centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The cent is that how you say it? The centurion. centurion, sorry, <laughs> heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, I don't trouble, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. The text in Luke 7 shouldn't read that way. Here you've got Jewish elders that have just had, they had been appealed to by, an, by a Gentile, an infidel. By, by Roman law, the centurion, an officer that oversees 100 soldiers, he's supposed to think that who is God? Caesar. He goes, the oral law at the, of the day forbids a rabbi to go into the house of a Gentile. But here the Jewish elders are trying to persuade this rabbi Jesus to make an exception and find a loophole to get around the law and go into this man's house. And the reason that they give is because he, he's worried this. He loves our nation. He's built us a synagogue. Scholars think that this is probably the same centurion Cornelius that we find in Acts where not just the blessing of a, of a dying servant being healed, but your family being chosen to be the grafted in of the Gentiles where the Holy Spirit's being poured out. So it's tangible. But, you know, Pastor talked about, you know, about faith through the tithing. There's only one place in the Bible where the Lord says, test me on this. It's the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures, the, the Italian prophet Malachi. And... Uh, <laughs> And where, where he asks you to test it because he knows that, he, that, that he's going to pour it out so much you can't contain it. And he's going to use your trust in what you're, what you're giving him that he gave you to begin with to grow your faith. I believe Genesis 12.3 is the same way. God doesn't do parlor tricks. But, but he, if you do it with the right spirit and with the right heart, if you, if you test him on that, if you, if you seek to tangibly bless the Jewish people and you do it with the right heart, then he'll use it to, to grow your faith. I have, I have no doubt. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the life of, of countless others. Uh, and whoever has Isaiah 62, get ready. Um, Isaiah 62, you know, in churches, there are people get a, a, a compartment mentality in where they want to serve. Uh, there's some fellows in here wearing black leather vests, it's, right? They're not, I'm guessing, I'm just going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that they are not mothers of preschoolers. I'm thinking that they are, they're serving in a motorcycle ministry. And that's an area that interests them. It's something that they, you know, that, that draws others that are interested in that. And we tend to compartmentalize where we're going to serve in a church by, we want to be called to something that we want to do. 
I want to, I want to serve in the fly fishing ministry, actually. <laughs> but in Isaiah 62, in, in Isaiah 62, the Lord talks about a category of people. And who's, who's got Isaiah 62? Let's, okay, read it out as clearly and loud as you can, the entire passage. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. And you shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall, <laughs> nor shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, they shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies, and the sons of the foreigners shall not drink your new wine, for which you have labored but those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall, be so, you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Amen. The category of people that the Lord commands to give himself and themselves no rest until he makes Jerusalem a praise of all the earth is anybody that calls upon his name. Anyone that makes mention of the Lord is given that commandment. Romans 11, we see that uh, the Apostle Paul's warning the early church to just remember that you are a wild olive shoot that's been grafted in. You're not the root system through which everything flows. If the Lord can snap off an original olive branch, he can snap off the grafted in branch as well. And that's a, that's an, a warning that the early church did not heed. It's a, that's a whole different presentation to go into church history. You know, Iran is looking to destroy Israel. Hezbollah is looking to destroy Israel. Who knows what's going to happen to Egypt? We'll take a look at that in just a moment. But according to Ezekiel... As long as the constellations hang in the sky, the Lord's going to defend Israel. Amen. Thing is, he doesn't part the waters very much these days. He doesn't use pillars of smoke or pillars of fire. He uses people just like you and me. He uses people like Esther, Mordecai, Gideon, Richard Nixon, and people like you and me. So let's shift gears and uh, do a 110-year drive-by on Israel's history. The reason that I want to do that is because... I don't think this is the case with any of you, but you have kids that are in school, you have relatives, you know, that think that they're, you know, academic uh, achievers, and it doesn't matter which professor you're sitting under, doesn't matter what talking head on what respected news channel you're listening to, you'll often hear the word settlement or occupation in every other paragraph when it's talking about the Middle East conflict, and it's always spun to be a club to bludgeon Israel with as land-stealing, territory-expanding occupiers. And so it is a process of delegitimizing and demonizing the Jewish state and trying to drive a wedge in between U.S.-Israel relations and Christian support for the Jewish state as well. So let's take a look. Conventional wisdom would have us believe that if Israel would just go back to the 67 borders, that there would be peace in the Middle East. The Twin Towers wouldn't have gone down. Mumbai massacres would never happen. Madrid bombings wouldn't happen. The guy who wanted to blow up his shoe to take a plane down would have never thought of that if Israel just gave up a little bit more land. So let's just see how much land she's got. She makes up less than one-eighth of 1% of the land in the Middle East neighborhood. 
290 miles long, 85 miles wide at her widest, 9 miles wide at her narrowest, a little smaller than New Jersey. So what, what's happening? The Ottoman Empire falls in the wake of World War I. Lord Balfour, uh, Great Britain's uh, point of influence, is kind of entrusted to oversee the reestablishment of a Jewish homeland, and that's what he carves out. Uh, just one small problem is that England owed a big favor to the Hashemite kingdom and turned around and gave it to become Transjordan. Three quarters of what had been set aside to become the Jewish state was made into Transjordan. About the same time, 1928, you've got Muslim scholars. They're racking their brain trying to crack the code and figure out how is it possible if Allah is the true God and Islam is the true religion, how is it possible that, that the Ottoman Empire would be, would be brought down at the hands of these Western infidels? And so a number of them got together to form an organization to restore Muslim lands to Sharia law, their, their constitution, the Quran, Quranic law, and to inoculate their youth and themselves from influence of the West, restore Muslim nations to their grandeur, and then bring that good news to the rest of the world. And so in 1928, Hassan al-Banna founded the Muslim Brotherhood to do just that. He found a guy that was the perfect franchise director for him in Jerusalem, the, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Hamin al-Husseini. And he liked him because he just he had a lot of very negative rhetoric against the Jews. Al-Husseini hooked his wagon to the Muslim Brotherhood right away. And Great Britain allowed him to serve as the Grand Mufti because they liked the friction and undercurrent that he created, uh, kind of necessitating that they stay in the Middle East as, uh, in this crossroads where, that they, they wanted to keep as a quasi-colony uh, and not release it back to the Jewish people. They wanted to keep, their, keep it as long as they possibly could. And this man was creating enough conflict where they had to stay kind of as a referee. That was the argument that they made. Pretty soon, though, it wasn't just negative rhetoric. Pretty soon it was every time he'd be done speaking, Riots would break out, synagogues would be arsoned, women would be raped, men would be murdered, and he was eventually exiled from Jerusalem and ultimately ended up in Berlin uh, where he befriended his old pen pal, Adolf Hitler. We'll catch you up uh, just a second. So 1937, you've got all this infighting, even though al-Husseini has been exiled, the fighting continues, and Great Britain forms the Peel Commission to come up with a solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict. And so they figured that each, each people needs their sovereign neighborhoods. And this is the peace plan, that the, this is the partition plan that they proposed. The purple part was going to be the Jewish homeland. The green part was going to be the Palestinian state. The Jewish leaders argued amongst themselves, were insulted by the, you know, how offensive that was, how tiny it was. But they ultimately were able to persuade everybody to come on the same page and said, okay, we'll take it, we'll be glad to have it, thank you. Palestinian leaders took a look at that, and they said, you know what, we can, we're not going to have a Palestinian state next to a Jewish state, I don't care how small it is, and they rejected it cold. 1938, all the way up to 1938, Hitler did not have extermination on his to-do list. He had exiled the Jews out of Europe on the to-do list. It wasn't until 1939 that he shifted gears into the extermination process. If you look at the at the transcripts of the Nuremberg trials, you'll see German war criminal after German war criminal pointing to al-Husseini as the voice that insisted that extermination be brought up and right up to the express lane because if you exile them out of Europe, they're going to go to Palestine, and I don't want them there. So to appease the Arabs, right, 1939, now you have, you have death being eminent for the Jews in Europe, the only place that they can really flee is Palestine. Great Britain is in control of immigration, and to make the Arabs happy, what does she do? She closes the gate on immigration for Jews trying to flee uh, what was ultimately going to become the Holocaust in Germany. She used the white paper in 1939. 25,000 emergency immigrations, 5,000 a year for the next five years, not to exceed 50,000 without Arab approval. Fast forward. 1947, the UN on November 29th actually ratifies the, the establishment of a Jewish homeland to be implemented in six months. On May 14th of 1948, the Jewish uh, state was reborn. Immediately, uh, fighting ensued against her Arab neighbors, and about 18 months later, she's expanded her borders. She didn't really have borders, those were armistice lines, but they were temporary interim borders. The problem is, is to have permanent borders, 
you need a neighbor that wants to live next to you to figure out where the fence is going to go. And Israel's never had one of those. So 1960, this, this land uh, serves up until June 5th of 1967, and now we are at the critical hinge pin of really understanding the, those professors, those, uh, those journalists that would have us believe that Israel is a land-stealing, territory-expanding occupier. June 5th, her Arab neighbors rally to cast every last Jew into the sea. And less than a week later, she's quadrupled her territory. On June 6th, of, uh, on June 6th the Six-Day War breaks out. On June 10th, this is what Israel has herself in possession of. It was not a six-day war, by the way. It was a three-hour war. It took five days and 21 hours to take inventory of who lived and who died. But the war was over in three hours. And in three hours, she has quadrupled her territory. And what happens next is pretty telling about the heart and soul and intention of this land-stealing territory expander. Her foreign minister, Golda Meir, reaches out to the Arab League, an organization that, by the way, was founded to prevent the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine, and says, you know what, we don't, we're not trying to expand our territory. We don't want, we don't want the Sinai. There's oil wells in the Sinai, and she's going to give them back. We don't want the Golan, we don't want the West Bank, we don't want the Gaza. You know what we want? We want you to take all this land back that we just gained as spoils of war against aggressor nations, and we want you to take it back, and here's the three strings attached. We want you to agree with, to live with us in peace. We want you to recognize that we have the right to exist, and we want you to negotiate with us so that we can figure out how to be good neighbors. So now you have Arab leaders that are chewing on the idea of all these disenfranchised Arabs that, that, that really have nobody looking out for their best interests. They're at the mercy of the Jews now. And they're, they're confronted with this, this decision. Do we, do we restore them back to their, to their sovereign governments and, and let, their, let this land be reclaimed? Or do we let them become refugees so that we don't have to recognize that Israel has the right to exist? And they elected to do the latter with the Khartoum Resolution, the famous three no's. No peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no negotiations with Israel. 1979, Egypt and Jordan lost their membership cards in the Arab League because they had the audacity to form peace treaties with Israel. By the way, that peace treaty that Egypt has, uh, I don't know how many of you saw the news this morning. Uh, when I first met Chris Spencer, and, and he came to our first, one of the first presentations that he saw, uh, at that time, uh, polls were saying that the Muslim Brotherhood didn't stand a chance, that at best they were going to get 8% of the vote. And as of this morning, they officially announced that the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Mohammed Morsi, is the new president of Egypt. Wow. 2000, Ehud Barak offers some of the greatest concessions since the Peel Partition Plan. It's rejected cold. 2008, Omer offers a checkpoint-free corridor connecting Gaza and the West Bank. And it is... Uh, gives a laminated map to Mahmoud Abbas and uh, never gets back to him. We've seen in recent months Hamas and Fatah have, are trying to form a unity government. They've uh, tried to you know, set their differences aside, even though a couple years ago Hamas was hurling the bodies of Fatah members off the roofs of buildings. But now Fatah is actually, actually trying to figure out how to reconcile and create a unity government where they will be co-governing with a recognized terrorist organization, Hamas. Now, months ago, our government, our Foreign Affairs Committee, ceased $300 million in foreign aid to the Palestinian Authority because that was posturing to take place. But to kick the can down the road, because we're in an election year and we want to create the illusion that negotiations have restarted, we just unfroze that money. The, one of the allegations that Israel is uh, uh, accused of is that she's an apartheid state that Palestinians don't have any rights, they can't, you know, that they can't own property, that they can't vote, that they can't pass freely into, from one neighborhood to another. Uh, that's true if you're not a citizen. There are Arab Israelis that, ha that happen to be descendants of Arabs that had the good foresight to take Israel up on her offer to become citizens, not to pull, pull, you know, take up arms against her when she was reborn. They chose instead to become citizens, and they and their descendants have every right that every Israeli has. They hold office in parliament, they can vote, they can own property, they can pass freely. But if, if you happen to have parents or grandparents that chose to go the other route, 
and you're not a citizen of Israel, then you don't have those rights. If, if a foreigner comes to this country, they can't run for office. They, can't, they have trouble buying property. It's, it is a matter of citizenship. <laughs> okay, all right, let's, let's not go there. Let's not go there, okay? <laughs> is this being recorded? Okay, right. I, I get the master when I leave. So, uh. But if you take a look at the words of Mahmoud Abbas, We'll never recognize a Jewish state. I shall never allow a single Israeli to live amongst us on Palestinian land. That is apartheid. We've seen what's happening in Iran. Right now we know that Iran has an arsenal that can reach any of our military installations in the Middle East, anywhere in Israel. The Shahab-3 intercontinental missile can hit a dime 1,250 miles away. And a year ago, last, just last May, uh, photo op with Hugo Chavez announced they were going to put a Shahab 3 missile base in Venezuela. So the day that they actually begin construction on such a base will be our generation's equivalent to JFK's Bay of Pigs Cuban Missile Crisis. Khomeini was asked if, he's, you know, if he'd reconsider relationship with Israel, and his, his response was, Israel is a cancerous tumor that needs to be cut out and removed. And we know Mahmoud Abbas is, you know, Israel should be wiped off the map. But, but he loves, when he's got masses in Tehran Square, he loves to close his eyes, hold his hand up, and ask everyone to imagine a world without Zionism and America. And too many people forget the last two words of that quote, that statement. Imagine a world without Zionism and America. Just two months ago, the uh, Iranian military commander basically stated that the, the sole purpose of Iran's military is the annihilation of the Zionist regime. And this picture doesn't even need a caption to explain. <laughs> you can tell right there that the expression on Netanyahu's face is a pretty good indication of the confidence that the Israeli public have in America's willingness and uh, reliability uh, should push come to shove in the Middle East. But just this morning, it's official. Morsi is the new Egyptian president. Middle East scholar and negotiator extraordinaire Jimmy Carter. Uh, you know, 18 months ago, or 14 months ago, uh, he was asked at the Lyndon B. Johnson Library, you know, what was going to happen. The interim elections were going to be about a month away. And he said, there's no way the Brotherhood's going to get elected. They'll get 10% of the vote at the most. Next month, they got 86% of the vote. Uh, just recently, he just he, he made the statement, yes, I trust the Muslim Brotherhood. Hamas is the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood in Gaza. That's who they are. If you, want to, if you take a look at some of the most respected scholars of Islam, that they, they may be across the board in many ways. They all agree on one thing. If the Brotherhood comes to power in Egypt, it, it will become a giant Gaza. That, was, that is Egypt's future if, if the Brotherhood is at the helm. One of the things that, that we don't appreciate, because we think in terms of, of you know, Western economy of thought, and when we hear the word democratic or we hear the word vote or... or Liberty, we, we think in terms that when we hear them coming out of the mouths of people in the Middle East, we get all giddy thinking that, that they're, trying to, they're going to become more like us. And that's not the case at all. All of those words are being applied in an Islamic-dominated society. And, and they don't recognize borders of states and nations. They look, at the, they look at the entire... The Ottoman Empire didn't recognize borders or states and nations. It was just one big caliphate. And, and the man that just was elected this morning, officially recognized as the president, what did he say? We're seeing the dream of the Islamic Caliphate coming true at the hands of Mohammed Morsi. The capital of the Caliphate and the United Arab States is Jerusalem, God willing. That was just, that was just last month. I don't know what the Brotherhood is going to do in Egypt. I have a good hunch. I have an educated guess what they're going to do. Uh, but I know what they're doing in the, in the United States. In 1963, they came to the United States to form the Muslim Student Association. And today they have about 100 chapters on campuses across this country. And this is, this is them in their own words.
really doesn't meet the requirements of a legitimate state. Two-state solution is off the table. No, one state. And check this out. One state, majority rules. One state, majority rules. Us, the Muslims. They stage in Diane's and they act as if they are Gazans who are being attacked by Israel. What is going on in Palestine right now is actually apartheid. In their efforts to demonize Israel, pro-Palestinian supporters will often cite unverified news stories as fact. Only two days ago, a United Nations school run in Gaza was destroyed in an airstrike. This, like many other stories, turned out to be false. Free, free Palestine! professor at a rally and then you go to class, there's no way that you can ever bring up anything positive about Israel. You know where he stands, you know what side he's on. You're gonna hush up and be quiet. I'll tell you something that happened at UC Santa Barbara. Professor Robinson in the sociology department actually sent his entire class an email giving the example that, that Israel is the new Nazi that the Palestinians waiting in line at a checkpoint are the same as Jews waiting in line to go to their deaths in a death camp. When they go out and strike at the heart of Zionism, they are not suicide bombers, they are heroes. They are heroes. We will fight you. We will fight you until we are either martyred or until we are victorious. Or of loss, of despair. Now that was the scene at UC Irvine last Thursday when Muslim protesters disrupted a speech by Daniel Pipes, the director of the Mideast Forum. What were they saying when they disrupted you? Well, as they left the hall, they said anti-Israel, anti-occupation, anti-oppression. But what was more interesting is what they said after they left, left the hall. And just a matter of time before the state of Israel, we'll be wiped off the state of Israel. Apartheid, colonialism, occupation, racism, massacre, holocaust. We know these aren't true. We know that Israel is not an apartheid state. Zionism is not racism. That Israel is not a new Nazi. We know that, but we have to be able to express that, articulate it, and teach others how to do so. The MSA, the Muslim Student Union, uh, they've got about 100 chapters with a 48-year head start on us. Four years ago, we launched CUFI on campus, and today we have about 100 chapters on campuses across the U.S. Another 200 are in the making right now. And so uh, one of the things I'm challenging and inviting you to consider is that if you know of a college student, Melissa Holman's with us today, she's going to be joining us in Washington, D.C. at our summit, along with about 450 other college students from from campuses across this country where we are establishing chapters not to mute anybody, not to dismantle anybody else's chapter, but just to make sure that there's a level playing field, to make sure that there's a mechanism on those campuses to assure that Israel is fairly and accurately portrayed and to let those Jewish students on those campuses realize that they're not alone when their enemies are on the march. So we just did an event last month up in Portland put the posters up to invite people. The next day, every poster had a swastika drawn in the middle of the Star David. Uh, that's, by FBI's definition, that's a hate crime. So CUFI on campus is, uh, we're extremely proud of it, and uh, we're honored to see the, the Lord using it to really change the hearts and minds. The students that are on college campuses today are going to be, in 15 or 20 years, they're going to be in the halls of Congress and in our Senate. Uh, you know, President uh, Lincoln said that, you know, that, that the, what's taught in the schools today is going to be what the laws are that govern our nations tomorrow. And so, uh, so I ask you to consider those naturally gifted, overachieving young men and women that you know and go online, nominate them to receive a scholarship. We have a few left, not very many, uh, but uh, if nothing else, we can come and help them establish a chapter on their campuses. But more than that, out, on the, out in the back of the table, you'll see a, uh, a number of resources. One of them is the Israel Pledge, where you can sign up to receive our email. Uh, every Tuesday, we send out an email. 
a lot of people don't think that, that making a phone call or sending an email is that important to their elected officials. They think, well, if it's that important, then a lot of, plenty of other people will do that. Really. You know how many people it took to take prayer out of school? One. Because Christians thought it was so important, plenty of other people will raise their voice against it, and nobody did. How many, pe how many people did it take to, to make abortion legal? One. Because Christians thought if it's so important, plenty of other people will raise their voice about it. And they, they left it for others to do. And so uh, don't underestimate the impact of your voice and your vote. Right here we have an example. Uh, that billboard on top was running in New Mexico. And uh, one of our leaders saw it, and they ran the ad. Uh, that other billboard, they put a billboard up. That billboard was vandalized, by the way. Our billboard, our pro-Israel billboard, was ripped off and vandalized. And if I could find the man that pulled over in the middle of the night and took a utility knife to cut that sign down, I would buy him a $50 Starbucks card because it agitated and galvanized our member base so, uh, so much in New Mexico that there's going to be dozens of pro-Israel billboards across New Mexico now uh, because people don't, don't want to be muted. The, the advertising company, when they took a look at the content of our ad and they took a look at the content of the other ad, they canceled the other one. That same organization, though, behind that have changed their narrative, and they're not trying to portray themselves as pro-Palestinians anymore. They're trying to portray themselves as pro-Americans. They're, they're putting a fig leaf over themselves to look like they're the Tea Party or like they're right out of Ron Paul's media kit. And so this is an ad that's really behind a group that, uh, that love Hezbollah, and they love Hamas, and they hate America, but they're putting these ads up in California now. So email, really simple. You send an email, your elected officials think that that represents hundreds of other people. Hosting an event like this, maybe one day we can do an evening event where we'll do a, a, a much more in-depth, comprehensive presentation for people up here in the foothills. Uh, but, but if you can, don't just nominate a student to go to D.C. Consider joining us yourself. It's a life-changing, history-shaping experience. There's people in this room right now that I know that are going to be with us in D.C., and when your elected officials, when they, when they see that you're not a Jew, that you're a Christian, and you come to D.C., they know how many days of vacation you get. They know, how many, you, know, they, they know you don't get a lot of vacation dollars. And you choose to go to D.C. If it, you know, they think that an email represents hundreds, and a handwritten postcard to them represents thousands. But when you physically go to D.C. in their office, it, it is totally off the radar. It's totally off the charts. The first year that we went in 2006, they didn't see us coming. We were hoping to have 1,000 Christians and 3,600 showed up. The next year, they didn't think we'd be back because no organization's ever come back twice, and the next year, 4,000 showed up. The third year, they were hoping that we wouldn't come back, <laughs> and 4,500 showed up. And then they saw us ushering up the Joshua generation. Then they saw us, people like me, taking a step back and having Melissa facilitate the talking points to them and they realize that we're handing the baton to the Joshua generation because if we don't do that then all of this is shadow boxing and when they saw that we were handing the baton to the Joshua generation they actually shifted gears and now they look forward to us coming back they know that we're they, they know that not only are we coming back we're planning to not go away and so so I really challenge you and, and, and invite you to to consider those young leaders I'm going to wrap this up. There's a short glimpse of what you'll get if you go to D.C. I know Pastor and your wife used to go to D.C. a lot, and I'm, I'm hoping that this is going to resonate with you. Christians united for Israel. Christians united for Israel. Christians united for Israel. 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 We are blessed to be here for such a time as this. We set the bar for what they can do. We tolerate if we stand up and say no more, no more hatred, no more demonizing Israel, no more Helen Thomases, no more distortions, no more misrepresentations. We can set the limit on what they do. I believe it is both our right as American citizens and our responsibility to speak out in support of the state of Israel and the special relationship, the unbreakable bond between the United States and our democratic ally of Israel, no matter who is in the White House or which party controls Congress, it is our duty. The American people support 
Israel and Jerusalem as her eternal capital. And so should it ever be. Your allies grow weary of fighting tyranny and oppression and seek the easy way out. We stand with you and say, I am an Israeli. We will ensure that Israel will not only survive. Together, we will ensure that Israel will continue to thrive. Pray about it. If you have the means, if you're able to join us, I, I assure you that it's a, it is a fabulous and incredible time. Just two quick things, and then I'm going to uh, hand this over and, and, and let you folks have your day back. Uh, folks accuse Christian Zionists of being driven by end-time prophecy. Uh, I am driven by prophecy. I'm driven by the prophecy that's foretold in Joel 3.2, where the Lord is going to actually use how nations dealt with his inheritance, Israel, in the day of judgment. I want to err on the right side of that one. Uh, the second thing is, is that everything that I tried to pack into this time that we had together is all boiled down to this little antidote, and it goes to our second D.C. summit when we learned the hard way from the first one that the media was not out to cast us in a very positive light. It seems that Christians are the last bastion of political incorrectness to make caricatures out of ourselves. And uh, so we had rules for them. We had a specified press area. We had, they couldn't be out on the floor without a staffer. And I was on the floor, and I saw the big mic boom and the big shoulder camera without a staffer, went up to see if I needed to intervene. And this fellow's interviewing a white-haired lady with a number tattooed on her left forearm. And with a condescending, sarcastic tone, he says, how does it make you feel to know that after all you've survived and endured, that with the president of Iran on the rise, that your, your kids and grandkids may have to face the same thing? And she didn't miss a beat. She said, it's not the same thing. We were alone that time. We're not alone this time. So if, if any of this finds itself in alignment with what the Lord has put in your heart to do with Israel, then we'd be honored to lock arms with you and join our voice with yours. And together we can make a, a much greater impact than we can individually. So I thank you for your time. I thank you, Pastor, for inviting me to be with you today. And uh, the resources that are out on the table are all for, they're all free. So take them home and, and go through them. And if you uh, want to receive our emails, just go online to cufi.org. So God bless you. Thank you.